Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. I'm honoured to introduce to you a giant of the modern Christian world over the last few decades. Michael Cassidy was born in South Africa and is the founder of the enormously important organisation African Enterprise, whose 600 staff and countless volunteers and friends operate in seven countries promoting Christian faith through word and deed. Michael played a highly significant role in the end of apartheid in South Africa, in particular its peaceful transition averting widespread bloodshed. He's here in Australia where he's been telling the so far untold story of that miracle. Michael Cassidy, welcome to Open House. Thank you, Lee. Wonderful to be with you. It's an honour to meet you. Thank you, sir. Can I begin by taking you to one moment 51 years ago, to one highly significant moment in your life on a beach, and take us through what happened there. (laughs) You know what I'm talking uh, about. That was a moment, much to be remembered. It happened as part of a tour which I did around Africa in 1961, along with a friend. I always call it a Caleb and Joshua tour, because Caleb and Joshua were sent out to spy out the land, if you'll remember, in the Book of Numbers. And I went with a friend to spy out Africa. I was a student in the States at the time at Fuller Seminary, and I had begun to feel the calling of God upon my life and had a great sense that I needed to go over to Africa and um, look it over, you might say, spy out the land, see what the needs were, see what the challenges were, see what the problems were. I put a map of Africa up in my room at seminary. First of all, I started with every major city, and I took uh, one city a day uh, of major cities for 31 days, and so that every day I prayed for a different city around the continent. And I began praying systematically for each African country, and that one day I would uh, have the opportunity of, of ministering in those countries. And with this friend, uh, I set off on this uh, journey, which God miraculously provided the resources in uh, the northern summer of 1961. We traveled the length and breadth of Africa, starting in Tripoli and Libya, Tunis and Tunisia, Algiers and Algeria, and then 50,000 kilometers around the continent that summer. One of the stops was in Monrovia, Liberia, on the west coast of Africa. Very beautiful country, been a troubled country, but very beautiful. I was all caught up, you know, in this thing of searching out God's mind for my life. And I went down to the beach, and it was pristine and virginal and beautiful. The beach sand was there, flat and untouched and magical. I remember coming up with a really big prayer in my heart, and I said, God, I'm going to walk 50 steps along this beach and make 50 imprints in the sand. And I want you to give me one year of ministry on the African continent for every footprint I make. And I proceeded then to walk 50 steps along this virginal, beautiful, magical sand. And uh, when I had made my 50 steps, I paused and I looked back and I said, Lord, I want one year of ministry in Africa for every one of those steps. By God's wonderful grace, that has exactly happened and been fulfilled. Some people have said that I should write my memoirs, and I thought that if I do, I might just call it Footprints in the African Sand. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it might sound an audacious deal with God to say that. I think God loves us to pray audaciously. I, I, I would always rather pray a prayer too big and have him cut it back 
then pray too small and, and, and the Lord tell me one day, you know, your vision wasn't big enough, your faith wasn't great enough. I see lots of audacious prayers. I see Caleb, age 85, saying, give me this mountain, give me the toughest part of the Canaanite assignment, I'll take it on. I see God saying in Psalm 2, for example, at uh, verse 8, I think it is, ask of me and I will give you the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And as a student, that is exactly how I prayed. I said, Lord, I'm going to take that prayer. I'm going to ask you to give me the nations for my inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for my possession. I have found it fun to pray like that. I like it when in the prayer of Jabez, you know, he he says, enlarge my territories. The Lord says, well, you ask me, I'll, I'll do it. And so I keep doing it. I pray the Jabez prayer every day. And my wife says, please stop, because we want to calm down a bit, <laughs> settle our lives. You've had your 50 years. <laughs> yeah, no, I say the Lord, at least 50 years now. Forget about what I prayed on the sand. That's at least 50 years. I want more. Well, you're into 51 and right now. now I've asked the Lord to give me another 20 years of ministry. Marvelous stuff. So where does that head? The first city mission is held the next year. In about July 61, as we went on down through that trip and we landed in Peter Maritzburg, the capital of Natal, and I preached in a local university and in a church. And first of all, some students and then the ministers went out and they said, yes, let's ask this kid and his team to come for almost a test case in citywide evangelism the following year, August of 62. And a year later, a team of us from Fuller Seminary, we came back to Africa and we embarked on that mission with extreme fear and trembling. I had never preached two days in a row, let alone two weeks in a city hall. I don't think I'd ever seen anyone come to Christ under my public ministry. But the Lord just somehow gave us a boldness. And never before or since, I don't think, has that city hall been jammed to capacity for two weeks, as it was in August 62. And that kind of confirmed to us that uh, when God was saying, I want you to take on the cities of Africa, that this was not just a pipe dream. There was reality to it. When you look back now, more than five decades on, what has it all taught you about how God works? Well, I'll tell you what, he takes very weak people. And I'm not saying that out of some kind of uh, false modesty, because when I left university and before I went to seminary, I would have been too nervous to speak even to a Sunday school class. I had all kinds of social fears, inadequacies, insecurities. Like when the Lord called Moses, I said to him, look, I, I can't speak. I'm not up to this. I couldn't cope with social situations in a party. I couldn't arrive at the door of a church on a Sunday after the, the morning church service and say thank you to the minister for the message without my throat constricting and my hands perspiring and so forth. I only share this to say that I, I was completely inadequately prepared, you might say, or equipped for something like this. Personally. Personally. I mean, I just wasn't up to it. I didn't have the self-confidence and so on. And I couldn't cope with any public situations of any thought. That's why I thought my life will be spent teaching 10 and 11-year-old boys in a little maybe preparatory school. That's how I saw my life. And then it's like the Lord said, no, but that's not what I've got for you. I've got more for you, and if I call you to it, I will equip you. And in 1957, in the basement of Madison Square Garden during Billy Graham's New York Crusade, I was in the States visiting relatives. I heard the voice of the Lord as distinctively as I ever heard it on anything. And he said, I want you to do city evangelism in Africa. And I said to him, well, listen, Lord, I know you don't mess up too often, but you've messed up now. <laughs> 
because I'm not up to this. Was so, it a fearful prospect? So, yes, very fearful to me. And then the Lord, you know, he began to give me confidence. So when you say, well, what have I learned? I've learned that God takes the feeble. He takes the inadequate. He takes the very ordinary. And he leads us forward. He's a God who guides. Psalm 32, 8, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll guide you with my eye upon you. I've learned that to be true. I've learned that God is faithful in standing beside one. I've learned that he enables one to do what he calls us to do. I want to write a little book in the next while, if the Lord spares me, entitled Great is Thy Faithfulness. It would be a story just about 10 or 11 uh, arenas of life in which I can testify to the faithfulness of God. So yes, he takes weak people, he equips weak people, he gives you a task to do, he keeps you at it, and uh, he's absolutely faithful. Michael, the work of African Enterprise set an entirely new framework for how Christian faith is promoted and explained in numbers of ways. When you embark on your evangelistic missions, what is the approach that you take? How did it differ? As we looked at the uh, cities of Africa, once the Lord had put this call to us, we were first of all influenced by the Billy Graham model because Billy had become such a hero to me after my conversion at university. And he came to the university and preached, and then I heard him in Madison Square Garden. And I thought, wow, that's really wonderful. And I've always admired him, and uh, I, I, will never, I will never minimize mass evangelism and mass crusades or whatever. But it is also true that in that kind of uh, ministry, you tend to have a stadium pretty much filled with Christians. And we were concerned really to fish where the fish are. And so we established, not to the neglect of mass meetings, but but as a major uh, stratagem of our approach, we established what we call stratified evangelism, which means going to all the different sectors and stratas of society, bringing a, the message and methodology couched contextually for that audience. So, for example, you know, we would be in a marketplace one minute, we'd be in the mayor's parlor the next minute, we'd be in a school the next, and in a university the next, in hospital the next, in a, in a business house, uh, a factory, a clinic, or a prison. And so every situation you were gearing the message for real outsiders who were in those contexts. Meeting people where they are. Meeting, fishing where the fish are, meeting people where they are. And we found this was very, very, very effective. So that instead of like having a big mass meeting every night of a week, we could have anything between 70 and 100 meetings on one day. So that you could have a week or eight days of mission with nearly a thousand meetings. And that requires bringing in a strong team of evangelism. It's not putting all the eggs in the basket of a mass meeting or around a, a powerful personality, highly promoted or something like that. It was really a team ministry and it reached into every corner and sector of society. It was quite effective. And more broadly, <clears throat> your work is to engage the word and deed, which is another distinctive. This is true, and our mission statement says that we exist to evangelize the cities of Africa through word and deed in partnership with the church. It's very holistic. You can't go to a person who is starving, for example, and just hand them a tract about John 3.16. You can't go into people devastated by apartheid in a camp where they've been segregated off and so forth, and just tell them basically that God loves them without expressing a care for the structural context and the political laws that doom them to be there. 
You can't go in after genocide in Rwanda and just preach from an air-conditioned pulpit. You've got to speak to broken, smashed-up people, aching in the profoundest levels of their beings. And sometimes it may be a ministry to the hungry or a ministry to orphans or a ministry to prostitutes and so forth. So our Lord brought both of these emphases, and we see it like the two wings of a bird uh, or the two blades of scissors. They, they belong together. You've had a particular and long-term affiliation with Australia and Australians in this work too. Uh, yes, indeed. Yes. And uh, I first came to this country in 1978, and we did a mission in the Blakehurst, uh, Sylvania, Miranda area. And that really began uh, a real, for me, a real love affair with Australia. I mean, I, I, I love it here. I love the people here. I love the fact that you play cricket and you're better than most people, and <laughs> rugby also better than most. And, <laughs> It's been really a wonderful, meaningful journey, and I've had the privileges of ministering here in leadership groups. You know, I did a leadership mission once in, uh, in Melbourne. We've done missions in, in universities and schools and colleges and many in churches. It's been a wonderful experience, and uh, I love Australia. I sometimes say if I got thrown out of South Africa for any <laughs> reason, good or bad, I'd, I'd almost certainly come here. Michael, another of your great passions has been for leadership, especially in a continent that's experienced such war and oppression, corruption, tribalism. Tell us how and why that vision formed in your mind for leadership. <clears throat> I think the fact was that from the start, I recognised that leaders influence a great many other people. They're not more important as individual souls to the living God, obviously. And uh, the highest leader or the, the lowliest follower stand on level ground um, at the cross. But it is also true that uh, strategically leaders are very, very significant because they affect the lives of so many others. A politician with a stroke of the pen can contribute to a law that can either devastate or bless, you know, multiplied thousands of people. So from the very beginning of our work, the Lord seemed to open doors to leadership. Even that very first mission, when we were really just sort of kids in 1962, we found that we weren't just reaching the sort of masses of the city. We were getting special invitations to go and speak, you know, to the the mayor's parlor, to business leaders, to civic leaders, to professional people. At that time, I remember we also met Alan Payton, for example, who the, the famous author of Cry the Beloved Country, and his colleague Peter Brown, who founded the South African Liberal Party. At the same time, right after that, we met Chief Albert Lutuli, who was the band leader of the African National Congress and the first Nobel Peace Prize winner of South Africa. The average evangelist generally came and would put up a tent and minister to masses. But in the curious sovereignty of God, doors opened for us into leadership sector, younger leaders in, in, in universities and that sort of thing, potential leaders, and then actual leaders in the business, civic and professional world. So that was always part of our ministry and integral to it. Is there one particular person's story that you can relate to us? that demonstrates how that equipping in leadership has worked powerfully. It's difficult to select out of uh, a lifetime of, of doing this, but one person does come to mind who uh, was a, a young fellow touched in the very first mission to private schools, which I ever did. The private schools represent not actual leadership so much, but certainly potential leadership coming through, yep. usually privileged 
young people out of reasonably uh, moneyed homes and that sort of thing, getting a good education and going to go on to affect the lives of many others. And I think of this one young man who came to Christ in that mission. His name was Garth Collins. The Lord's calling to Garth, he went off to university and he did his training and all of that, but the Lord's calling to Garth has been the South African Parliament. And he has devoted his life to ministering to politicians on a bipartisan, multipartisan basis in that parliament. He's with them morning, noon, and night, and he, he has, runs Bible studies with them and so forth. And he hooks up in ministry, basically, not just to the South African parliament, but to other parliaments all around Africa. So that's just one person touched, and uh, only eternity could calculate what his impact has been on political leadership and maybe even how numbers of parliamentarians and different parliaments voted when it came to the vote in their political processes. Mm. So, you know, those kind of things happen. I mean, I, I think at the same time, that same school mission, curiously enough, another young man, a friend of Garth, his name was Derek, Derek Morphew, he went on to head up a whole denomination in South Africa, still does. So, you know, if the seed goes out, it lands on fertile soil, people are changed and transformed. But I always remind people that the power is in the seed, not the sower. That was not my power. The power was in the seed. I have no power to create an oak tree. But if I can find an acorn and I can drop it into the ground, then the power is in the acorn and in the seed, and an oak tree will come forth. Indeed. On Open House, we're with Michael Cassidy from African Enterprise. As I said before, while you're here in Australia, you've been telling this untold story of your part in the high-stakes drama of the end of apartheid. What is that untold story? When we were leading into those elections in the early 90s, and the elections were set for 1994, but things were going from bad to worse in the country, Every aeroplane was filled with what we call PFPs, which are people packing for Perth. You know, I mean, there was just the most enormous exodus. There was the most tremendous fear. And the country was sort of drifting really towards a kind of a civil war. And nothing the politicians were doing seemed able to resolve it. As we were moving along through those years, something became evident to me, namely that many of our leaders had similar visions for the future of South Africa, but they were all in different kind of hermetically sealed political parties, and the leadership never spoke to each other. And so in 1992, a group of us from African Enterprise, we went round and we visited all the different political parties and prayed with them. We didn't go and try and tell them what to do, but we went as teamless to, you know, to pray with them. And we found that here, here were people with similar language, similar vision, but not talking to each other. We made a decision that in 1993, we would begin a series of dialogue weekends, drawing together political leaders from all across the spectrum, um, from the far left, whose sort of word was, you know, one settler, one bullet, through to the far right, who were saying, give us a million guns, uh, white groups, we will solve the problem. After we'd prayed with them, we said, we need to try and get some of these people together. And we mounted these dialogue weekends at a place called Kolobi, Kolobi Lodge. We had about 15 to 20 political leaders in each of these weekends. And we got them, not just Christians. In no. fact, only a handful of Christians. There were Muslims, there were communists, there were secularists, there were atheists, there were, you know, there were some Christians and so on. And we brought them together for these dialogue weekends. 
I think many of them came very suspicious, wondering, what, you know, what's Michael up to here with us? But I said, no, all we want you to do is to share your own autobiography, share your own story, and then share, secondly, your vision of a new South Africa, and thirdly, the steps to reach it. Amazingly, many of these leaders, some people from the cabinet, the heads of parties, and all of that came. For many of them, it was almost intoxicating experience. They had not spoken to others about their political stories. But it was in the context of their political enemies. And there's something very powerful about hearing someone's story. Because, you see, once I hear your story, you are then demythologized to me. The stereotypes I may put around you break. You see, because I now hear actually what makes you tick. So huge transformation took place in the lives of many of these political leaders in the chemistry of encounter and of sharing their different stories. They came as enemies and they left as friends. They left with relatedness. You know, here we are coming into the end of 93 and we've got this network of friends in place, but the country is still going from bad to worse. And we're heading towards the April 27th elections and uh, the country's burning. In my area, 20 people a day were dying, 70 to 80 to 90 every weekend. And the, the place was really, really on fire. At this point, then-President de Klerk and Dr. Mandela and Prince Mangasuta Butlesi decided that they needed to call in international mediators, led by Henry Kissinger and the British um, Foreign Secretary, Lord Carrington. And they came into the country on April the 13th. They began to meet on the 14th. The elections were 27th, so just a matter of days away. And um, after only 24 hours, the, the process broke down. Now, prior to this, we had brought into South Africa a Kenyan diplomat called Washington Akumu. He knew Butulese, he knew Mandela, he'd met de Klerk. He had been in diplomatic things. He was an economist. He trained on Henry Kissinger at Harvard. And we said, Washington, come and meet many of the people in this network of relationships that we've built up uh, because you could perhaps play a significant influence in this. So he did. He was made an advisor to those mediators. But that, that mediating thing, which was started on the night of the 13th of April, collapsed on the 14th. So it only lasted 24 hours. And then Akumu phoned me and he said, it's all broken down. Kissinger's going home. Carrington's going home. I'm going back to Nairobi. It's, it's all over. Kissinger says Armageddon will be here in two weeks' time. And the U.S. State Department had told us anticipated a million dead. And Wellington, Washington said, well, and I'm going too. Well, I had the temerity to say to him, brother, you're the one person who can't because you understand much more about this than, than, than Henry Kissinger with respect because he had met all the players, and we'd spent weeks and weeks helping him to do so. And uh, we had agreed that we would meet on April the 17th, which was a Sunday, and so explosive was the, inf the, the, the situation that the previous day, the Saturday, the Waratahs, I think it was, all the Wallabies, maybe it was the Waratahs, were due to play in that stadium against Natal or somebody, and they cancelled because they said, it's so dangerous, so explosive, we don't have a rugby game. But then here are these crazies, and they've called for a prayer meeting the next day in Kings Park Rugby Stadium, which we had done. We didn't know whether five would come or 50 would come or 500 would come to the prayer meeting that next day. In the event, 25,000 people turned out to pray. 
And as South Africa cried representatively in that prayer meeting to God to bring an answer, in the VIP lounge we had Jacob Zuma, currently president of South Africa, there representing Mandela. We had Prince Mangasuda Butelezi himself. We had Mr. Dani Skota, who was the man in charge of the South African elections, representing then-President de Klerk. And in this lounge, while everybody prayed outside, the document Akumu had come up with, suggesting a way through, was agreed in the body of the prayer meeting. It's an extraordinary scenario. I mean, I can never sort of forget it, really. And what happened then was that Butelezi called his central committee and said, I want to meet you in three hours' time. Uh, Donny Skutter called the president, and he, he said, come right back to Pretoria right now. Akumu had gone to meet Mandela in Cape Town. And that evening, by about quarter to nine, agreement had been reached around this document, which was really sort of finalized within the bowels of this prayer meeting. That was April 17th. April 18th, they dotted I's, crossed T's. April 19th, de Klerk, Butelezi, Mandela came on the media, said we found a way through for South Africa. None of us who were in that will ever, ever, ever forget the emotion of that. The media, the media had no language to describe it other than the language of faith. So every editorial was headed, miracle, 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 miracle. Uh, Natal Daily News headline, the day God stepped in to save, save South Africa. Just for once they got it right. Exactly, exactly. And Wall Street Journal carried a full page on God and politics. Time magazine said, if there are miracles in history, this is one. The BBC said, you know, we are witness to an authentic miracle in history. And in fact, BBC said the Jesus Peace Rally tipped the scales. The elections were less than a week away, and uh, the elections happened in the three most peaceful days probably in the history of South Africa after all of that violence. And so we know, like we know, like we know, that God stepped in where even able and uh, committed and everything else kind of politicians hadn't pulled it off, the Lord had pulled it off. Can you share with us what Nelson Mandela was like to deal with and to relate to through that time? Mandela's a most extraordinary man. I mean, that would be a truism and an understatement. My first sort of extended time with him was when the door opened for me, curiously enough, through the head of the Communist Party, <laughs> to present Dr. Mandela with Billy Graham's book, Peace with God. And Billy had given me the book and said, you know, could you try and get it to him personally? So that was the first of a number of occasions that I had time with him. I suppose one was struck by the graciousness of the man, the humility of the man. He told us how when he was in prison, you know, that he never failed to go to the Bible study or to the church service or the communion. The fact remains that those 27 years on Robin Island should have set him up to come out with all guns blazing for bitterness, for revenge, for slaughter every white, you know, and get every kind of redress which the black population fully and rightly at one level deserved. But I think Mandela saw that eye for an eye make, makes everybody blind. You can't see your way if you have that. And that forgiveness would be the answer. And, of course, he established then the Truth and Reconciliation Commission where amnesty was given in exchange for truth. One of the more bold political endeavors, I would say, of our time in history. He was a very remarkable person, a lot of grace, a lot of charisma, the spirit of reconciliation was on him. And certainly, you know, when, when he became president, I felt he was my president. Mandela, somehow or other, he embraced the whites 
Yeah, there were halcyon days, really, politically, yeah. and um, the new South Africa was being born. It's a wonderful story. Can I fast forward uh, to just a couple of months ago, you were appointed honorary chair of the Lausan movement, the great Lausanne movement, to succeed the late John Stott. Your involvement with Lausanne goes back at least four decades. What difference do you say that movement has made to the church and to mission over the last 40 years? I'm very excited about the Lausanne movement. There have been many legacies coming out of it, but obviously any of us who know something about contemporary mission history would be aware that the Lausanne Covenant is maybe the most comprehensive statement of theological faith, certainly missional faith, maybe almost in the history of the church. It's such a balanced statement. It's such a good statement. It brings together biblical faithfulness on all the key essential doctrines of the faith. But it also brings this holism that we spoke about before, because it talks about evangelistic sharing of the gospel so that people come to Christ and find him and able to live in the knowledge of Christ. But then it challenges for this to be holistically worked out in the socio-political arena. And in that context, what do you believe with all your insight and all your experience, is the greatest challenge facing the church in 2012 and beyond. It's a very different church yeah, than it, it was decades ago when Lusanne was born. <laughs> you yeah. ask tough questions, yes. Lee. Yeah, I should have thought twice about coming on the program. <laughs> I'm sorry. Mean? I'm sure there's an answer there. Well, though. it's hard to know exactly what to pick up on. But I think to me, and this may sound a little uh, simplistic or naive, but I think I would have to say that one of the major issues is the issue of truth. You know, we're now into a postmodern age where truth is relativized, ethics are relativized. The notion of truth as uh, operating on the old system of the law of antithesis that if two contradictory statements are made, they cannot both be right. Now we're really saying, even if the statements are contradictory, so long as you're sincere, they're the truth for you. We need to recover the notion of truth as coherence with the facts as they are, which is what C.S. Lewis always used to say. If I, as a Christian, say that Jesus died on the cross, was vital for our salvation, rose from the dead again as an item of history, and he's going to come again, and he's Lord of the universe, and if the Muslim says no, he did not die on the cross, he just was ascended into heaven, that's nothing to do with our salvation, he isn't God, then you can't say both statements are true. So now, why truth is to me so important is because it addresses the issue of what I think is a new contemporary orthodoxy of interfaith, saying everybody's saying the same thing so long as you're all sincere. And while I believe we have things to learn from people of other faiths and other traditions and all of that, we cannot try to pretend we're all saying the same thing. If you relativize truth, then you cut the nerve of evangelism and mission and it ceases to be vital. So whatever you, you go out to do there in evangelism and mission, it's all, you're, just, you're just having a nice time with it. It doesn't really matter that much. Throughout your very significant ministry, you've had a very deep and ongoing connection with two men, two giants, Billy Graham and John Stott. Can I ask you, as we begin to wrap our conversation, are there two things, one from each, that you learnt or particularly impacted on your life? One from Billy Graham, one from John Stott. Yes, it's true. I've always said that uh, those were the two men who most majorly shaped my own life and ministry. And I've had the privilege of knowing them and, and loving them dearly. Billy Graham's still alive, and I, I pray for him daily. And John Stott, while he was alive, I prayed for him daily. And I thank God for him daily. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think with Billy Graham, 
The thing I would probably want to pick out and identify with is his faithfulness to the gospel. Billy Graham is an absolutely faithful proclaimer of the biblical message, no matter what was happening around him. Billy would not deviate from proclaiming faithfully the gospel. He believed that people without Christ were lost, and he preached with tremendous urgency and passion. I admired that, and I thought that was really phenomenal. I think the other thing I would pick out about Billy Graham is his integrity. I said to his biographer, John Pollock, once, what are the secrets of Billy Graham's success? And he said, well, two things. First of all, he has the deepest sense of anyone I know of instrumentality. In other words, of being an instrument in the Lord's hands, and that God could take his hand off him and it would all be history. But then he said the second thing was he is integrity personified. And I've loved that about Billy Graham all along. And uh, when all those televangelists like uh, Jim Becker and, and Jimmy Swaggart were collapsing with all those dramas in the States some years ago, Time magazine, which was not a Sunday school journal, <laughs> in, in its religion section, it came up with an article entitled, And Then There Was Billy. And I wrote to Billy Graham after that. And I said, Billy, I just thank God for your integrity. You plowed a straight furrow morally, financially, practically, and in every way. You've been true blue, blade straight. You've been the real thing. And thank you for that. I think with John Stott, I think one of the things that always struck me about John was diligence of preparation and depth of content. John Stott would spend one hour for every five minutes of public speaking or preparation. Most of us throw a talk together for a few minutes, not John. He would have a diligence of preparation. And in consequence of that, he would have a true depth of biblical content. To me, Stott on content, Billy on spirit, I would love in the best of all possible worlds to bring those things together in my own life sure. and ministry. So here's my last question. Lots of your life and your work has involved organization, visionary work, negotiation, even brushing alongside politics, which could easily suffocate the freshness and vigor of faith. How have you personally kept it fresh? As I'm sure you have. I think I have. <laughs> I'm sure you have. <laughs> I think the key for me has been, first of all, to keep a strong devotional life going and to have an ordered and systematic daily prayer life and an ordered and systematic style of reading the Bible. I have a system that takes me through the Old Testament once a year, the New Testament and Psalms twice a year. That has been a very, very important ingredient in my prayer life. I try not to compromise on, on that, to keep the internal, the fires burning inside yeah. in one's own spirit. The second thing I think for me would probably be um, something which might surprise you. I've been careful about rest and recreation. I've been, if you like, a Sabbatarian ever since I was converted, which means I take one day off in seven. If I'm preaching on a Sunday, it'll be either a Saturday or a Monday I take off. And I think God has made us so that we need break times. And when I meet ministers who say, oh, I haven't taken a, you know, a day off or had a holiday in four years, I don't say, gee, how dedicated you are. So I say, no, you must repent. Uh, which brings me to the other thing. I've been dedicated all my life about leave, annual leave. I take two breaks a year, one of 10 days in July and one of between three and four weeks in December. And that simple expedient has really helped me to keep going and avoid burnout. Many, many people do burnout. They simply don't stop. You know, they mistake diligence for absence of common sense. 
common sense and the Bible says that you need to take proper breaks. I think those things have really kept me going, my Bible reading, my praying, my taking of appropriate breaks, my seeking to have good relationships with my wife and family, which I'm very much blessed with. I think life is a holistic thing, and one has to look after oneself, have a good theology of self-care, and you have to be constantly and deeply devoted to your Lord. Sage advice in a rich and marvellous conversation. I'm so <laughs> grateful for your time oh, and your thank wisdom. Thank you. You bless me it's letting me share. And let me just say if there are any folk out there who have been listening to us and you wonder a bit about this Christ I've been talking about, let me just tell you one little verse, and that is the one through which I came to Christ as a student in October back in 1955, which shows how Neolithic I am. <laughs> but a friend of mine told me of a verse in the last book of the Bible where Jesus says, Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come in to him. And that day, with my friend, I realized I'd never done that. I'd never asked Christ to come into my heart as my Savior. I'd never surrendered to him as my, my Lord I'd never opened the door of my heart to him as friend. And I knelt and I asked him, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, come in today. And he came in back then in October 1955, and he'd been my faithful friend daily now for some 58 years. And wherever you're listening, you may be in a hotel room, you may be in a car, you may be on a highway, uh, you may be in your room, uh, wherever. Just think about that. Jesus' invitation to you. He knocks on the door of your heart. And if you say, yes, Lord Jesus, come in, he will come in and he'll walk with you all the rest of your days. God bless you. I'm so glad you added that. Michael Cassidy, thank you so much indeed for joining us on Open House. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.